Welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guests are Ted Gibson and Jason Bakke, the co-founders of Starring. Welcome, Ted. Welcome, Jason. How are Hi. you? Good morning. Thank Good morning. you. I know yeah. it's early where you guys are today. It is. Well, it's really early. I'm the reason why I'm wearing these glasses. And a tie <laughs> at 6.30 in the morning. I know. Well, you know, I needed some color. <laughs> <laughs> So guys, I mean, obviously you guys have had a very interesting last couple of weeks. I'd love to hear about what has been happening, you know, as business owners, as a founder, like in this COVID-19 pandemic. And then obviously since the onset of uh, the killing of George Floyd and uh, the protests that have been sweeping the country. Well, you know, that's a mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) And, you know, um, Hi, it's Ted. And the thing that I, there's so much to say that I have to put my thoughts together because it just seems like it was a lifetime ago and it's really been only like three weeks. (laughs) Like in this last three weeks, um, especially since Mr. Floyd's death, but if we can count the last four months from COVID and of course, you know, the, the, the killings, it has just been crazy. Like my world seems like um, not only because of business, but my world in general feels like it's kind of turned upside down. And I think it's an it's a necessary thing that I feel this way because I think that um, right now, especially, is the time where I feel like that I have to speak up um, more than I ever have in my life. I think that these things that have happened to us has been things that um, like no other time. So I think it's important for us to, and especially for me, to speak up as much as I can. So, you know, in business, you know, I'm, I'm with my life partner, uh, Jason Bakke, who I'm so grateful for because what I think he helps me do is really helps to keep me uh, grounded in a way and helps to challenge me on thoughts and helps me to really kind of be a better person. And I think that it's important to have someone like that in your life. What about for you, Jason? How has this last few weeks been for you and months? Um, I would say the most intense of my life, except for maybe 9-11, um, you know, from really just really getting into our groove at the salon. It, it had only been open for a year. The year anniversary was April 4th, I think. And so when we had to close in March, um, we, you know, Ted and I are the kind of guys that we bet the farm on everything. We always talk about, you know, going to Vegas and there's a, two kind, two ways to go to Vegas. You can sit at the nickel slots and have your free cocktails and, you know, just put those nickels in and you're never really going to win big, but you're not going to walk away losing big. Or you can go to the high rollers table and throw everything you got down on the table and hope for a big win. And that's what we did when we moved to LA. So we invested everything into the salon and into our product, Shooting Star Texture Meringue. And um, when we had to close, when Hollywood shut down, when the salon shut down, when we couldn't fly to New York to do our clients, we had $2,500 in the bank. And we, every single revenue stream was closed. So we were freaking out, you know, about what we were going to do. And then at the same time, you know, Ted's got an elderly mother. I've got a sick parent. So we're dealing with things from a distance with our families. Um, And then the murder of George Floyd happened. And being in an interracial relationship um, in a city that, you know, in Los Angeles, where right outside of our 
front door were protesters and police in full, you know, assault mode. Um, it's all been really, really, really intense. But I think the thing that has been great for Ted and I is we were able to sort of pause and decide again, who do we want to be in the beauty industry? What's the most, what are the most important things to us and how do we want to move forward going through it and on the other end when, it, when we could open again? So, um, Ted and Jason, I have to ask, you know, what is it like, you know, hairstylists, hair colorists have traditionally been behind the scenes. Obviously, both of you guys are, you know, have your celebrity backgrounds have worked on Angelina Jolie and Anna Hathaway and have really ex- impressive reputations. But to come out and be activists now, to kind of be so vocal in the beauty industry, which have relegated some of these conversations to the back. What has that like been? What has that been like for you? Oh, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Um, it's risky for sure. You know, I think about it every single day when I'm fighting with people on Facebook and on Instagram about their views on racism and their views on taking down the statues and their views on how. Um, black and brown people should be in America, (laughs) you know, and it's risky for sure. But, you know, the thing that I know is that um, no risk, no gain. And for me right now, it doesn't matter about necessarily about economics Um, at this moment. For me, it's really about making sure that I can make a difference. You know, what is going to be, uh, it's great that I've worked on Angelina Jolie and it's great that I've worked on Annie Hathaway and it's great that I've done all these really incredible actresses, Sandra Oh and Gabriel Union and Zoe Saldana, you know, all these really incredible women, right? And at the same time, it's like, at the end of the day, what does that really mean? What is gonna, going to be my legacy? and What's going to be the things that have made such a huge difference um, in, in this, this world, in this country? And, and yes, I know that those things have really helped me um, financially has helped me professionally, absolutely 100%. And I hope that what it's done is that it has helped pave a way for the next generation of black hairdressers or brown hairdressers that come up behind me, that hopefully what I've done is I have opened up doors that will, um, be better for them. You know, I I hope, um, that's really my hope and my legacy that I really, really, really hope that, um, my career has a, um, yeah, that my career has really done something. Do you think that there's more pressure on you being a black man, um, and having to be outspoken right now? Um, do I think that there's more pressure me being a black man every day and Mm -hmm. more pressure on me? Yes, absolutely. You know, um, you know, I, I have to tell myself that I cannot be on Facebook. Right. Because all of the people that I've known over the last 30 years from high school are that have been a part of my life throughout my journey of of my career and being a person. Um, It's funny how when you're famous and people want to gravitate to you because of your fame, not necessarily because of who you are or anything like that, just because of your fame. And now I'm like wait a minute, <laughs> like you were the person who uh, we had great conversations, but now you want to tell me that my life as a black person isn't valued. 
and that you think that all lives matter, yes. But what we're talking about is that if black lives don't matter, then all lives don't matter. So yeah, it's, it's very important that I speak up about that. You know, I was very surprised when I spoke to you guys a few weeks ago, um, Ted and Jason, both of you, I felt I was shocked that, you know, despite all of your success, despite your retail partnerships with Starring, despite starting the salon, you had never um, taken outside capital and investment in your business. Will you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. You know, we um, we've always been out of the box thinkers and kind of forward in the way that we approach ideas. And that's why, you know, we were able to launch products the first time that started off in Henry Bendel and then went to, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue and then went to Sephora and then went to a thousand doors of Target. Um, Ted has been on QVC, uh, HSN, um, whatever the other ones are always sells out the product. And we have tried to grow our, our business to its full potential by looking for investors. You know, we were going to LA, going to New York, going to Miami, meeting people, putting together decks of our product, of our celebrity history of, you know, all of the things that we've done and we've never got an investment. And, you know, when we compare, we try not to compare because it's not fair to compare, but, when we do compare to other people, um, Orbe had three big failures before his product line got really successful. Um, Frederick Fakai failed at least twice and had investors bail him out and rebuild. Um, and we can't help but notice that we have done in education for the professional industry in celebrity, in Ted being on a really well-known television show for five years called What Not to Wear, in having three and now four beautiful, successful salons in four different states, um, to developing our second product line, we can't help but compare. Like, what's the what's the difference between us and them? And the so, what is, is that difference? What do you think that difference is? We're a black-owned business. That's the difference. Do you suspect that changing now in this environment? I mean, well, I imagine that, you know, more retailers, more investors would be approaching a business like yours. But is it also something that you may be reticent about? Because what kind of partner is that that's doing this now? <laughs> it's very interesting because we've had that conversation, you know. Sure. Um, on one hand, we want to be very conscious of the motives of the people that want to work with us because people are calling and people are wanting to do different things with us. Um, and on the other hand, we're businessmen and we know that this is the, if, if not now, when, you know, this is the time to strike when the iron is hot. So it's really about vetting out who the right partner is. And one of the first questions that we have is who are the, what is the diversity in your portfolio? Mm -hmm. What brands are you carrying? What brands are you investing in? What brands are you working with? And um, how are we going to fit into that? And how are we going to be a shining example of um, those kind of relationships? Mm -hmm. It's funny, as Jason was just saying that, like, when I think about the um, Black, well-known 
hairdressers with household names that have built mega, mega, mega brands. Madam C.J. Walker. And that was 100 um, years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, right. Commercially, I mean, there's, you know, Dudley Products, there's Soft Sheen, you know, there's these companies, but there hasn't been an individual that has made such an impact and have have moved mountains because we have to move mountains in order to get the same kind of recognition that our white counterparts do. Um, there hasn't been anyone, you know. I, I, I didn't have anyone to look up to as a, as a young black hairstylist that wanted to emulate, oh, that's who I want to be like because they've created product and they have had salons and they've had education and all these things. All the people that I've had to look up were all white straight men, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's true. You know, if you think about Paul Mitchell, you think about Aveda who, a, a horse Ruckerbacher who was the founder of Aveda was a dear friend and an edge and a, a mentor of mine that had taught me a lot. But he was white and straight. You know, there wasn't anyone that was like me that I could emulate, you know, and that says a lot that it doesn't make any sense to me that how there wasn't anyone before me. How do you feel about, you know, the business today? Obviously when you guys st- launched during the, the salon concept in LA a, a year ago, about about a year ago, mm-hmm. you know, it's super innovative. It totally makes sense for this kind of environment. It's very virtual, very tech enabled. Do you think that makes sense, more sense now in this new normal? Or do you think people are still kind of trying to figure out where that sits in their everyday lives now? Well, it's interesting because we just this morning saw on uh, Instagram that Nick Arojo, who has a product line, he has beauty schools, he has a giant salon in Soho. He just posted on his Instagram that he's closing his flagship location because his business model can't conform to the new uh, regulations. You know, he's lost employees through COVID-19. He's got a massive rent there on Varick Street. Um, And I fear for a lot of our um, colleagues, small business owners that are going to be in the same situation, that they can't Mm -hmm. adapt, that their rent is like, I look at some of these salons in West Hollywood and Beverly Hills that have 70 employees and are on major streets and they cutting their capacity in half is going to be a real struggle because the rest of their business is built on full capacity. You know, so we are really fortunate in the sense that from day one, we thought boutique, we thought intimate, and intimate means kind of having luxury of space. We thought technology um, and all of these things turned out to be exactly what we needed to have right now. How do you think that plays with the product side of the business? Because, you know, I feel like I hear different things all the time. It depends on the CEO, it depends on the founder, you know, really (laughs) focus on one thing get one thing right, scale in Sephora, scale in Target, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Then there's the other side of the business, which is like, well, salons, word of mouth, you know, the professional network is mm-hmm. the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So for you to tow both of these lines and mm-hmm. and both of them being somewhat challenged right now, mm-hmm. where do you think your focus is going to be in six months? Where do you want it to be? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really great. To, that, that's a great question because I feel like that in business, especially for us, you know, even, even myself as a hairdresser, I'm a consumer. 
And the thing that I know about um, being a consumer is that I want it right now. <laughs> you know, what I see, I want it to be in my house in two days, right? And I know that as a professional hairdresser and have had salons, I know that the model of having $20,000 worth of product on a shelf, expecting the hairdresser to sell it, and the consumer to buy it is not really happening like it was before. So what that means to me is that businesses, and our business specifically, we have to, as you just said, massage both places and give both places um, the same kind of attention. But we know that the consumer is, is the way to go. You know, the professional hairdresser they have always been about wanting to make sure that they can do their craft. And, and it's really not about selling product. If you ask five hairdressers, have you sold product today? Probably only one of them would say yes. You know, Maybe one of five. Maybe one of five, you know? It seems like it's two totally different jobs, to be honest. You know, I... Mm-hmm. I- I remember last year when um, Amazon started doing that kind of referral program where Mm -hmm. if with stylists, I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. right. I thought, Mm -hmm. well, maybe this is would this would this make their lives easier? Would they make it not easier? Is it putting the pressure? What do you think about that? I mean, I think it's a great thing for a small business owner. One of the things that we thought about before we opened Starring was that difficult relationship that salon owners have with manufacturers, you know, so to be friends with Kerastas, you need to have an $18,000 opening order. And then you need to reorder of roughly $2,000 a month to stay friends. So right there, you've got $20,000 worth of shampoo sitting on a shelf, not even counting the hair color that you have to buy. So like most small businesses have 15 to $30,000 worth of manufacturer inventory sitting in their salon. And in a business where at least 50% of your income goes to payroll, which in any other business model is an epic <laughs> fail. Um, <laughs> having $30,000 of inventory sitting there is a, it's huge overhead for small business. So that's, and that's why just we, retail, right? That's not even concluding all the hair color that you have in the back to do, to service the guests with hair color. Right. So that's why we decided to launch uh, shooting star texture meringue directly exclusively to Amazon and to not carry retail in their, in our salon. So the retail that people can buy uh, is through an app or through Amazon. So I love, you know, that direction. And it's kind of ironic how when we were pitching this, you know, experience center salon to different mm-hmm. manufacturers, they immediately said, we will never ship directly to the consumer. We will never, mm-hmm. we'll never betray our salon partners by shipping directly to the consumer. Well, cut to COVID-19. Lies. they're all shipping direct to consumer. So I think this, this experience of COVID-19 and shutting everything down is going to have a really dramatic impact on the way that small businesses relate to the manufacturers, the way that consumers expect to get their product. You know, when we opened our first store, December, 2003 on fifth Avenue in Manhattan, there was no Sephora in every town. There was no Alta in every town. There was no Amazon. There was no, it was really scary to put your credit card online to order (laughs) product, you know? Um, And the only place you could go to buy professional product was the salon. So the hairdresser, they didn't have to try to sell it as much as they do now in salons. The consumer has so many more options. So for us, like our goal right now is to really round out that line. We have one SKU now. We're looking for partners to help us round that out. 
Or we'll do like we have done in the past where we buy a house, we renovate it, then we take out a loan with, we use the equity in the house to make some shampoo. You know, that's, <laughs> that's our cycle over the last 18 years, you know? I just have to say, I think that people listening to this and are probably shocked because, you know, I think the veil has been pulled off a lot of businesses, right? You know, I mean, obviously you're reading it in the New York Times and seeing what's going on in the government, but you know, you're a celebrity hairstylist, you're a celebrity colorless, like you have access to so much, right? Or that's what people assume. But, and nowadays everybody's an influencer, everybody's a celebrity and all these yeah. people are getting lines. How do you feel yeah. about that? How do you feel about these beauty brand incubators like churning and burning these people out to create revenue? Right. But I think at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily create legacy. And mm. I think that that the the important thing that most people have to think about is the legacy. And um, yes, we have to think about what's happening right at the moment. But I think you do have to think about what's going to happen in six months and what do you, what's going to happen in a year and two years. And those projections, they may not be exactly the way that you wanted them to be, but I do think it's important to have a thought process that is about the future. And that's how we came up with Starring, when we decided we wanted to uh, create a new brand. Because when Jason and I closed our Fifth Avenue salon, it was the third salon that we closed. What so year had, was that? That was 2017. And in that span of about 13 or 14 years, we had three salons, very successful salons. We had one on Fifth Avenue. We had one in Washington, D.C. and Chevy Chase. And then we had one in Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the W Hotel. And when we closed the Fifth Avenue salon in 2017, we um, were like, wow. <laughs> and what happened in order for us to make that decision was we were in Dallas, Texas with our life guide. Um, at a hair show and I was sitting in a chair and Jason was sitting on the floor and Zan Ray is her name and Zan was sitting on the bed and she said you guys so so what's going on and we're like Jason and I are looking at each other and saying um you know we have only nine more years on the lease in Fifth Avenue we only have nine more years and I was we, in a place where <laughs> going to work every single day, I wanted to punch everyone in the face. I was <laughs> yeah. so unhappy. He was, he was really, really unhappy. And we couldn't really figure out what it was, right? So Zan says, why in the world are you keeping that salon open? And we're like, what? We look, what? She said, close the motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, what? She's from Texas. She says, close the motherfucker. And we said, what? That's an option? And she said, Yes what are you doing? Why are you having it open if it's making you miserable? And we were like, well, we can't because, you know, we, we're celebrity hairdressers and colorists and we have the staff and we have this big salon and what would people think? And at the end of the day, we were like, what are we doing? Because in September of 2017, we had our top producers in the salon leave the salon. In a horrible way. In a horrible way. After we've given everything to you, still to this day, a lot of them are still upset with us because they don't have the same kind of feeling that they had when they were with us because we took such good care of them. Like, why are you holding, why are you trying to hold me hostage for your feelings that I have nothing to do with? It's not my problem, right? So November of 2017, we'd made that decision in Dallas, Texas. We were going to close the salon. We closed it in December. 
just like that. What was that like as a business decision? I mean, obviously it was successful. It's New York City. It's the peak of the peak, you know, mm-hmm. Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. You're talking about these, having the staff, having having mm-hmm. basically everything that's seemingly markers of success. So mm-hmm. what did that feel like, that kind of freedom to start over and reinvent? Well, it's funny you would say that because we weren't planning on it. <laughs> yeah. You were done. <laughs> we, were, we were done. We were like, we knew that we needed to reinvent, uh, but we we didn't know there. We couldn't do it there. No, we we knew that that model of 25 chairs, 12 assistants, 15 assistants, a huge front desk staff, the overhead of the product. We knew that that model um, was a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we envisioned changing it, we couldn't do it in that location. No, we tried. And when we closed, uh, and we took uh, a good year and a half or two years to really think about what we wanted to do. And what we decided was we love the salon business. You know, we love being able to like create opportunities for people. We love being able to have a place to go every day. We love uh, having sort of the incubator or the mother um, that the salon is for our creativity and for our our product line. And we missed having that. And so when we decided that we wanted to open a salon again, we took a long time to think about the things that we really loved about the beauty industry or the salon industry specifically, and the things that we less than loved. And by taking away all of the things that we less than love, hiring assistants and training them for two years at $25,000 a person, uh, we less than loved. So we don't have assistants. Um, we less than loved the sort of diva mentality of high-end hairdressers that are afraid to get their hands wet, you know? So we have people who, because we don't have assistants, we have people who do their own shampoos. They do their own blow dries. Um, they do both cut and color. Um, we were paying attention to what kids coming out of beauty school want from their career. They want to do everything. They want to do makeup. They want to do hair. They want to do nails that maybe not nails because that's a different specialty, but they want to do that beauty look, you know? Um, and so that's what we focused on. And that's that's what created Starring was taking away the things that we less than loved and putting the things, paying someone to answer the phone to book an appointment. We less than love that. Like our <laughs> client. Know, paying six people. <laughs> right. <laughs> Two managers. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and meanwhile, they all thought that we were getting rich. We were taking, you know, that we, that we were getting so wealthy because we had a house upstate and because, but. I had more than one job. Like me too. I, you know what I mean? If, like I, if I, we were getting so rich from the salon, why would Ted be doing freelance <laughs> jobs, and why would I be working for a manufacturer every weekend? Yeah, yeah because it, it, and the, the the what happened was when we closed the salon, and we still would do clients because we had a, a nice uh, salon clientele. So we would do clients a couple of days a week. Uh, we had a friend that had a salon uptown, so we'd go up there and do clients a couple of days a week. And we looked at ourselves in April of 2018 and said, what in the world are we doing in New York City? Let's move to L.A. And that's exactly how it happened. In July, we moved. When you think about staffing today and what that looks like for your salon in L.A., and if that's scalable other places, what do you, what do you predict? Well, <laughs> go ahead. in L.A. specifically, in California specifically, in January of this year, a lot of new laws and regulations were passed about uh, who can be on a 1099 and who can't be, Um, who can rent a chair in a salon and what does that mean to rent a chair? And so the 
laws became, you know, very complicating for salons. So we decided to implement every single new regulation into our business. So the people that we're hiring are really entrepreneurial themselves and want to be a part of something that is going to have a legacy behind it, that's going to create change, that's going to help establish them as leaders in the industry as well. And as far as, you know, having this salon model in other places, it's something that we talk about a lot is franchising the business and finding places that we could open um, a similar technology-driven luxury kind of experience in other cities. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that we could have this new thought process about salons um, new. And we knew that the salon business and the salon process has not had any update in forever. You know, the innovation in salon, the idea of salon hasn't been innovated in forever. So when we decided that we wanted to open a salon, we said, okay, so what would it look like? And we had actually signed a lease in Beverly Hills. And as we signed that lease in Beverly Hills, six weeks later, the landlord still hadn't gotten it back to us. And we were like, so what's the deal? So at the same time, our broker sent us three other locations that were in West Hollywood and then the one on La Brea. And we said, oh my God, La Brea. So every time we'd go to the airport or come back from the airport, we would drive up La Brea. And we were, this neighborhood is really cool. Like there's something really interesting happening over here. Kids like waiting in line. Yeah. You know, putting up lawn chairs and tents to buy new sneakers the next day. Yeah. It's that that kind of neighborhood. It's that kind of cool, you know, really cool. And it's not like West Hollywood or Beverly Hills. So um, we decided not to do the one in Beverly Hills and, and of course, do the one in La Brea. And it kind of evolved into this smart salon where we had someone that came in, they designed the space. And as they designed the space, it was really beautiful. And we were sitting with one of our clients in New York, who's the senior VP uh, of communications at a major, major, major um, fragrance and fashion company, beauty company in New York City. And she's, we were talking to her about, you know, what, what would it be like? And she goes, well, what about pods? You know, we're like pods. Well, yeah, you know, if you were on a first class, in first class in a cabin, you have your own little, you know, pod and you have everything at touch point. So why couldn't it be that kind of service? And we're like, oh, that's kind of cool. But it wouldn't be a salon suite because we didn't want it to be where, you know, it would be cut off a box room with a door. That didn't make sense to us. Um, So she said, okay, what about pods? So we ended up kind of things just kind of happened right in a row. And we found this architect out of Chicago who built these major, major, major billion-dollar projects all over the world from like skyscrapers in Vegas, skyscrapers in Vegas, and Hong Kong, and you know everywhere, Shanghai, everywhere, right? Football stadiums, the airport in in Mexico City, you know, just all this really incredible um, architect. And we talked to him, and he loved this idea of this project because it was completely different than what he had ever done. And he came up with this idea of, well, well, Jason loves to tell the story about what he came up with first. So Jason, Yeah, when he first, his name is Francisco. His firm is called FGP Atelier. They're out of Chicago. And we had a couple of phone conversations and he put together this concept. And when he sent us the first renderings, like Ted and I both got tears in our eyes because it was so different than anything we'd ever seen and so beautiful. And then as we kept looking at it, there was no shampoo bowls 
there was no place to store product or color or there was no place, no bathroom, you know? So, you know, he obviously was not used to thinking about small business. Um, so we had to have conversations to sort of evolve the plan. And he did a really great job of taking our vision and translating it into something functional and beautiful and sexy modern and the way that we started working with amazon was funny because i was like what if what if it was the salon that amazon built and every nail and every two by four and every can of paint like we ordered it all on amazon and just sort of like set that out as an example and i have a family friend who at the time was a you know kind of up the chain at Amazon. And so I reached out to him and he introduced us to someone in the beauty department. And that's where the conversation came up about, yeah, well, the salon built by Amazon is kind of cool, but what if it was the world's first smart salon? Mm. And that's when it really shifted with Francisco and FGP Atelier's design combined with Amazon's interest in helping us with technology that the whole thing sort of you know, then ADP came in and helped with, you know, the most advanced security system that they have. And it just, all of these things started happening and it just got this incredible momentum that was really, really inspiring and fun. And I I just want to say for all of the small business owners that are struggling right now that maybe have to close their business, just know that in closing one business, it's going to open you up to so much opportunity and to so many great things that you can't even imagine are going to happen, but they will. So if you, if you have to close it, close it, Yeah, move on, do something else. Do not let your, your struggling business ruin your life. Like, yeah. And that's one of the things that dead weight. Yes. And that's one of the things that Jason and I talked about, um, maybe March 30th, (laughs) right? Before when we were down to $1,800, you know what I mean? (laughs) When, when, you know, the SBA loan didn't come in and the, did you apply for that? We did. And did you get it? We got it. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. It took me five days to fill out the first application because the website kept crashing, but we ended up, we ended up getting four different loans through the SBA. And that's Mm -hmm. what's that's what's been able to keep the wind in the sails through this whole mm-hmm. thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which has made a huge difference. Right. So, but what we said in, uh, on like March 30th, we looked at ourselves and we said, look, we will not be a slave to the salon. And if the salon doesn't make it, it's okay. Because there will be something else. It's really a powerful thing when you discover as a business owner to not be emotionally attached to the outcome of what exactly the business is going to be. Because when I think about it, you know, this is our fourth salon. It's our second product line. You know, I've worked on the most incredible women in the world. I've had to be able to adapt to everything that happens or that has happened that has made this point why we're talking today and not being attached to what the outcome is, is sometimes better than being in it. If that makes any sense. Sounds like a lot of timing, a lot of timing Mm -hmm. and being thoughtful in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I believe that everything is for my good. You know, even when it's not, 
even when people think, oh my God, you're closing your Fifth Avenue salon. Oh my God, what are people going to, you know, all of that stuff. Oh, you don't do Angelina anymore. All of that stuff. Listen, it's for my good. When you think about kind of the future of the business, what do you think about retail partners? Because obviously you have this relationship with Amazon. It's a very mm-hmm. close one. You've mm-hmm. been in other doors before. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense for you to go back to Sephora or to a Target or an Ulta when so much of their business now is online and when you know what those relationships used to be like? <laughs> That's a great question. That's a great question. Well, can I, um, can I just say one thing before you answer, Jason? The yeah. thing about product and I tell people this all the time. It's like, oh yeah, I want to be, I want to develop a product. That's great. But the thing is, where are you going to sell it? Because I think it's easy to come up with a shampoo. It's easy. Is it easy? Up... Is well, it easy? it's pretty. It it's pretty be. easy. You know <laughs> what I mean? If you have thirty thousand dollars, forty thousand dollars, you can go and get a shampoo made. You know, forty thousand dollars, you could probably make, you know, four or five different products as long as it's not in an aerosol can. Um, and it's really about how are you. Where are you going to sell it? Like Ted said, yeah. mm-hmm. and that's, sure. that's the big conversation that we're having now um, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's people talking about the 15%, you know, this social media campaign about having 15% of the space on every shelf dedicated to uh, black business owners. Um, so people are tagging us in those all of the time and we need to be really careful about, what that means for us. So we're having a lot of different conversations with distributors, with people that want to license our brand with, um, you know, franchising franchising. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, you know, there's always going to be the, the need for brick and mortar. You know, we're always going to want to have that shopping experience. Mm -hmm. However, that shopping experience isn't going to be available every five blocks, you know, there's going to be a Neiman's that's going to be a destination. There's going to be a Saks that's a destination, you know, that's going to help to like anchor their brand and everything else is going to be online, you know? So we're talking to people who are at the pulse of what's hot online, like where we should sell our product online. And then the anchors that we need to be in to give that sort of, because there is still something from, for the stamp of approval from a Saks Fifth Avenue for the, the stamp of approval of Sephora, the stamp of approval approval from Ulta, you know, whether those are the, those brick and mortar stores are the place we're going to sell the most product. It does give a nice halo, you know, when we're selling in other areas. Do you think that it might be easier right now to develop those partnerships in the sense that, you know, we always hear about the over skewing, right? You know, you hear, you make one product, you need to have 25 products to support the one product in the store, or this is a bestseller by XYZ brand. So you have to create the exact same product to compete with that brand. And then you have to pre- create the in-store support to support these product lines. <laughs> yeah. Did I get it right? Did I get yeah. it all right? right, girl. Yeah. <laughs> so now with this kind of, you know, this online, um, acceleration, do you think Mm -hmm. some of the barriers to entry would go away? Some of these barriers to entry would go away? Well, Hmm. you know, one of the things that we decided when we first launched Shooting Star Texture Meringue was we were going to launch one SKU because the days of someone going into, let's say, an Aveda store 
and buying her entire hair care, skin care, and makeup regiment. Is it regiment or regime? Regiment. Regiment. Whichever. Regiment. You know oh. what I mean? Uh, <laughs> those are those are gone, you know? She likes to have her Chanel under eye cream with her La Mer face cream with her Estee Lauder lip balm or, you know, whatever it is. So we want to be a part of that hero skew that people go to, like, we need that shooting star texture meringue. Um, and then when we launch our next product, there will be something innovative and sexy about it. It won't necessarily be a support product for shooting star texture meringue. It will also be a standalone product. So I think that that's very true that we need to think about the way that the consumer shops, what she's looking for, you know, in the 90s, it was not uncommon in New York City to see people walking through Soho that looked like they bought everything off of one mannequin in Prada, mm-hmm. you know? And now, remember, everyone had that little red Prada on their sleeve <laughs> or on their glasses or on their backpack or whatever, their shoes. Or their shoes, yeah. Yeah. And now it's, you know, I got these I got these jeans at H&M and I got this shirt at Balenciaga, you know, and pairing those kind of things together. So there's, you know, we're also having the conversation about, you know, do we want to go to drugstores? You know, Olay is a great example with their Regenerous line that you can get a great drugstore product. It's going to still cost you $48 for a face cream. Um, But the technology and the research that's behind those Olay products is amazing. You know, you don't have to go to the department store. So can we be the top shelf of the Rite Aid and have a luxury product that's really successful. Because another thing that Ted and I try to do is be inspirational, but accessible, mm-hmm. you know? So Ted's haircuts are $2,400, mm-hmm. but we have guys at the salon that it's $180, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, we want to really be in that middle ground where people aspire to do what we do or to have the life that we have, but also can afford it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last question for you guys. You know, I have to ask when you think about promotions like the 15% pledge and being the halo of a portfolio, being the black owned business that is a halo of a portfolio, how do you feel about, you know, the long term change and also maybe the tokenism that happens at the beginning? <laughs> what tokenism? Does that exist? <laughs> Someone said to me on Twitter the other day, you know, it was funny. They were like, what's a mentor? White people are always talking about having mentors. Like, I I don't know what that is. Wow. Wow. Oh, my God. Okay, you just really stuck a chord in me. I feel like, Ted, for you, you know, the tokenism piece of it and – for this business, for this brand, like what does that um, mean to pr- promotions and and calls to action like 15% or pull up for change or mm-hmm. any of the things that are happening that are bubbling up in the industry right now? Um, I, I'm so glad that it's a conversation. And um, I'll, I'll just tell you, we had a call um, with one of our retailers just the other day. And the reason what prompted the call was because on their Instagram, they put um, 
oh yeah, we're going to support black owned businesses and we are going to, um, it's violent. You know, gray, 50, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, is this violent? Gray? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to support, um, black owned businesses. And I sent them a message right on their feed. Like, um, and I, I should have said, you have a token <laughs> Black-owned business hairdresser product on your site already that's been there for over a year and you haven't done anything. And I'm right in your back pocket. Like, Not it once have easy. they done anything. Do you mean been, in terms of support, like marketing support, promotions, Yeah, I mean, they did emails. like in the first few weeks we were on, but that was because we did it as well. You know, because Violet Gray, of course, has this cachet that Jason was talking about, about this stamp of recoupal. Just we like were Barney's. so proud we to, be, to, Barney's, to make it through you know? there. Yeah. Whatever their Violet Grace. Violet Code. Violet the Violet Code. Code. Yeah. You know, we're so proud we were of in that, Barney's. You know? Yeah. We were in Barney's and that stamp of approval. So being on the right track, thinking that this is um, the way to go. And and then we just felt shelved. Yeah. Yeah. And I will right say here. I will so what has that conversation been like since you brought that up to them as a um, partner? We're still in discussion. What were you going to say, Jason? <laughs> oh, I, I was. Yeah, uh, we're still in discussion. But I will say, you know, I've been in northern Minnesota, um, which is probably 95 percent white. Um, and every single day I'm having conversations about race with people that have we've never had these kind of conversations before. People that are. You know, my niece's age, my nephew's age, which are high schoolers, um, people that are my parents' friends who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, peers from high school, you know, and I think that it's remarkable that this sort of perfect storm of pent-up energy from COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd and people not having to go to work every single day, so being able to release this pent-up energy and demonstrating and speaking up and whatever has created this conversation all over the world that mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't have happened. And if it did happen, it probably wouldn't have happened in the same way without COVID-19, you know? So I'm inspired. I was actually a little nervous to come to Minnesota, not only to get on an airplane, that was <laughs> a whole different story, but, um, and to be in this really homogenized place, and I've been pleasantly surprised by the conversations that are happening all around. So I think that there's a huge potential for real, real change. And it's an exciting time to be in business. And it's an exciting time to be having these conversations. It's an exciting time to be in an interracial relationship where I have the luxury of being able to have these difficult conversations every single day. Um, I'm really inspired. You know, yeah, me I too. Think. And, you know, um, and especially I, Jason has to tell me to get off of Facebook because I keep going back to Facebook, right? <laughs> because, you know, people that I've known my, my entire life are on Facebook from high school and from middle school and, you know, my neighbors and, and my white friends, and I hope that you're listening, <laughs> my white friends, when you say to me, do you why do you think that it's okay if people tear down statues and what does that mean why is the vandalism and blah 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 all the all of this stuff and i have to say to them look what you have to understand 
is that it might not make a difference in the way that you think it's going to make a difference. But what the difference is going to do is that we don't have to look at it. And it changes, it doesn't change history, no. That's not really what we're doing. We're changing for the future. We're changing for the present and for the future. And when that statue of Robert E. Lee comes down and you see that, it gives you, it gives me a sense of hope. It gives me a sense of accomplishment. It gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of that humanity is changing its dynamic about how they feel about brown and black people. It gives me the inspiration to keep going and moving forward because I see that no one is stopping them (laughs) because it has to be done. And people may think that it's just a small thing. My white friends who think that, oh, it's just a small thing. That What's it going to do? It's not going to really. It is. It is. And, And the idea of what we can do from now until for the future is putting up brown people in a statue that have made a difference for this country and this world and putting up a black person who has a statue that's made a big difference in this world. You know, and it's funny to me, Jason, I talk about this all the time, especially recently about how when a white friend of mine says, um, well, you know, quoting a Martin Luther King quote. (laughs) Oh my God, it makes me so crazy. (laughs) We're like, yes, we love, we all can attest that we love Martin Luther King. Yes. But it wasn't a happy ending. They got he got murdered. <laughs> so people post- hated him. Hated for that. him. Hated, hated him, him enough hated to execute him. him. You know what it's I mean? Not a fairy tale. <laughs> not a fairy tale. They hated him. So just chew on that for a minute. When you tell me this quote that Martin Luther King did, and then you're upset because people are rioting and burning shit down. Look, I am for by any means necessary to get people's attention. And when you have their attention is when the things are going to change. And it's the same thing in the beauty business. I'm black. I'm gay. I'm successful. I know I have to work hard and I continue to do so. So that for the next generation of hairdressers behind me will not have the same kind of struggle that I've had. And I know people have said to me when I put up about you know, um, all these different magazines that have done the story on me about what is it, why, well, it seems like you're really successful. What more could you want? What do you mean, what more could I want? (laughs) Do I I have to have enough just because I've been successful? No. Perfect. Thank you guys so much for being here. It was so wonderful having you. Um, Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.